I speak it to be aware of where I'm acting like a little street kid <laughs> and orphan and how to correct that. So we're on the third week. Um, since we we're going to be doing those morning things um, every Sunday because that's kind of like a review too, so it's nice. Um, I'm just going to put down my chair. Um, so the third orphan mentality, number three, is that orphans are afraid of commitment. Yeah, good one. So they're afraid of commitment. Um, why are they afraid of commitment? They have a fear of being hurt abused, controlled, or manipulated. They have a fear of being hurt, abused, controlled, or manipulated. So when I was living in Brazil, I've shared this before, that there are a lot of kids that live on the streets. And for us in the U.S., that is really, sh you know, shocking. Um, you don't go into Bangor and see a six-year-old walking by themselves on the street, if you did. There would be phone calls made to the police. Someone would take care of it. They would find their parents. They would get placed somewhere, whatever. Something would happen to protect that child. In Brazil, that's not the case. There are thousands of little kids, five years old, six years old, seven, eight, nine, ten, and up, that live on the streets. And they're begging for food. They're outside stores, etc. And I was living in Brazil in 2013 at the end of the year and I was doing a school called Children at Risk and it was a three-month intensive where we learned a lot about what it looks like to work with kids on the street but we also did practical so we were going out to the streets working with the kids um, and what I learned about while there was that in Belo the city that we're we were in is that the police would the kids would move from place to place. They were never in the same place multiple nights in a row. And there was a reason for that. They were constantly moving. And it was because in Bellow, the police would come and find where the kids were they at night, and they would take them outside the city, and they would kill them. They would kill children outside the city. Um, and so the kids were terrified, obviously, because they knew that this was happening. And the police were doing this because they said these kids are going to grow up to be the thieves, the, the prostitutes, the drug addicts of our society, so we might as well take them out before they become that. How sickening, how horrifying, right? We can't even imagine that. Um, so kids would be terrified because not only just bad people were out to get them, but the police who were meant to protect society was going to kill them at night. And so they had to be constantly aware. They couldn't trust anybody. They had fear, fear of being used and abused. I shared about my friend Glacy before, I think it was last week, um, where she was on the streets her whole life, up to 30 years old, where she met the Lord through a mission team on the streets. And when the foster care story, she was in a foster home. The husband was sexually abusing her. The wife walks in, sees him doing it. He blames her. The wife sides with him. They lock her in a bathroom for a week without food or water, and they just occasionally go in to beat her. That was one story out of 30 years' worth of stories of abuse and control. So, of course, kids that are in that type of situation, they are developing 
defense mechanisms because they can't trust anybody. They can't trust the police on the streets. They can't trust the people that they're living with, even if they appear to be good people. So YWAM, Youth with a Mission, they opened up three bases. They were homes, big buildings, and they would bring kids. The whole purpose of these buildings was to bring kids in off from off the streets to have a protected place. Um, they started doing that, and interestingly enough, the kids would come in, right, and they'd be so excited. They'd come in, they'd get a shower, they'd get a meal, they'd get a bed. Well, the next day, they'd wake up, and then they'd be having breakfast, and it was like, okay, this is what it means to be in this home. You know, y the structure is this. We're going to have, you know, you'll have this chore, and then we'll have lunch at this time, and you'll be helping in the cleanup, and blah, 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 all the structure that happened there, and the kid would run. They'd disappear until that next night when they're terrified to be on the streets because people are out to get them, and they'd be at the door again saying, please let me in, please let me stay here. They wanted the protection of the home. Why would they run from a safe place where they were getting food and shelter and a shower and all this stuff? Why? Their experience. They can't trust anyone. The longer the they stay, the more vulnerable they are to hurt. The longer they stay, the more they trust somebody, the more hurt they're going to become when that person abuses them and hurts them. And in their minds, it's inevitable that that person will hurt them because it's all they've ever known. Um, so much manipulation. Uh, my friend that I shared about, she was so manipulated by adults who were out, who were just really to use her. And they would act as though they were trying to take her in and take care of her. And days in, she would be in abuse again. And she had no idea as a child a child doesn't understand necessarily. They can't recognize manipulation. They're not mature enough sometimes. So then what do they do? They build these barriers. They build these walls so as not to get hurt. I can't trust anyone. I cannot trust anyone. So it makes a lot of sense that they would respond that way. Structure was too much for them. Rules was too much for them. They didn't want what coming in actually meant. They wanted temporary shelter for the night from the evil of the night, um, from the danger of the night. They wanted temporary shelter, but they didn't want um, to lose their independence because losing their independence and having to come into a structure that where they didn't get to decide what they got to do all day long meant losing control. So then they freak out, right? Because losing control is not a good place to be if you've always been in abuse. You do not want to be out of control. You have to be in control of that situation so that you don't get hurt anymore. So losing that independence um, was not an option for them. So when that happened, the rubber hit the road, they're literally hitting the road because to be out there and protecting myself is a little safer than to be inside trying to trust somebody who's going to eventually hurt me in their mind. That's the perspective. Um, yeah, losing control is danger. So does that make sense? Do you see why kids would be running from place to place? They never can stay someplace too long because they have fear of being controlled. Because out of control is not good. It means I'm going to experience danger. Manipulated. 
because they've been manipulated their whole lives to, to become something for someone else. Um, they have a fear of being abused, hurt. And even in, uh, it's not even that in non-Christian places, even in Christian places, there's abuse sometimes. It's reality, and it's hard. And so they thought, I can't even trust Christians sometimes because there's been abuse there. Who can I trust? Who can I trust? And so you have these children who are six years old having to think about all these things. Can you even imagine the terror, the, the walls that were built up, the mentalities of, I don't care how nice you are to me. I don't care how many times you bring me food or help me. I cannot trust you, and I will not trust you. And the minute I start to feel myself trusting you, I'm running. The minute it starts to get too vulnerable, I'm out, because that's not a good place. Do you see it? Why that that's an orphan mentality, what they've developed to get to that place of walls and fear. So how does this look like in the church? How does this look like in the church? We're afraid of commitment. We've moved place to place. You can look see that in church hopping, people who just jump from one church to the next to the next. Um, it could also be changing of jobs over and over and over and over again. I remember I shared this message in New Hampshire once, and a guy came up to me, and he said, Wow, I finally see it. I changed my job at least once a year because I was just never satisfied he said now I'm seeing it was an orphan mentality that I literally could not commit to one place I had to keep changing I had to keep running it can look like going from ministry to ministry to ministry why because we have a fear of being hurt we have a fear of being controlled we have a fear of being manipulated we have a fear of being used and abused even spiritually speaking I have a fear of being hurt in the church I have a fear of being vulnerable, like we were talking about earlier, and my information being used against me. That's a scary place. It can be a scary place. Wow, I opened myself up, and someone took that information, private, personal information, and they used it against me, and that's happened before, and it hurts. So I'm going to go into a church setting, a community of believers, and I'm going to protect myself. I'm not going to open up. I'm not going to share what's deep inside. I'm not going to share my insecurities or where I've messed up or any of my sin or anything I'm hiding. Why? Because I'm terrified. I'm terrified of people using that against me because that's all I've known. I don't trust people. I don't trust that they have my best in mind. I don't trust that this group of people is a safe place. And that's an orphan mindset because it's been our experience, and we're living off of our experience of what happen has happened before. So Street Life Ministries, you all know I joined when I was 18 years old. David is the director of that ministry, the guy who's coming on the 31st. And when I joined, they had this thing where they said, you have to make a three-year commitment to join the ministry. And when I was 18 years old, a three-year commitment was enormous. I'm thinking, that is my whole life. I can't commit to three years. What if something else comes up? What if something else happens that I want to do? Three years is too much. As an 18-year-old, we think that way. When you're older, three years does not seem that much. It just seems like three years passes like this, right? But when you're 18, that's like your half your life, it seems. 
so I'm praying about it, Lord, how? And so I made a, I ended up making a two-year commitment because I was going to go to college afterwards. And so they, you know, they made this deal with me. You can commit for two years because the school I was going to was going to put my scholarship on hold. So I'm there for two years. I wanted to leave a lot. It was hard. It was not easy. I was being corrected what felt like all the time. Um, I, f I felt like everyone was after me. I was functioning in an orphan mindset mentality, and I wanted to run so many times before that two years came up. So about a year and a half in, it was time for me to revisit. Am I going to stay here, or am I really going to go to college? And I began to pray through it, and I was praying and praying, and I just read an old journal of mine where I was lamenting about my choice and how am I going to make this decision? What's it's going to look like? Oh, God, I don't want to make the wrong choice. And I was crazy. If you please don't read those because <laughs> I was insane. Um, but I was just a lot of insecurity. I didn't know what to do. I really wanted to obey God. And as I was praying one day, the Lord spoke to me and he said, Wesley, you're going to stay here until David tells you it's time to go. Heck no, <laughs> that is not happening. I cannot trust this guy. This guy is going to keep me here forever. And I had all these plans of going to the nations, and I wanted to work with kids on the street. I wanted to go to the world, and I thought, this guy is never going to let me leave. He wants me to take over the ministry. He's going to have me here the rest of my life. Lord, you can't do that to me. No, this can't I was out of control. I felt panicky and fearful because I was out of control. And God was putting me in a position to say, I want you to give up control. I want you to commit and then not control the, the situation, not make things happen because I'm a pro at making things happen. I can make something happen. But God was saying, no, I don't want you to make something happen. I want you to learn to trust me. So I made that commitment in my heart. I never told David that. I didn't tell anybody that. I made it in my heart. I told David that I was staying on indefinitely. How scary was that? I was trembling, terrified, don't want to do this. But I said, God, I'm going to trust you. I know that you said this to me. I know that you spoke this to me. The fact was that David had put, uh, God had put me under David and Robin's leadership. He was the one who called me there. He spoke to me to be there. And so I needed to trust God by submitting to them. My submission to them was as if I was submission, submitting to the Lord because he was the one who told me. He knows David and Robin. He knew what kind of leaders they were going to be. He knew how they were going to correct and discipline me. He knew that. He's God, right? And so he's saying, go, submit to them. And so me submitting to them was submitting unto God. Does that make sense? Not that they were my gods. I was submitting to what he told me to do and trusting that he knew them. So I'm going to submit to them. Well, there was a lot that happened within that time, but the day came, six years into it, six and a half years into it, and I knew it was coming. The Lord had spoke to my heart, you're going to go to Brazil. And I'm like, well, you got to do something because I'm not saying anything. I have let go of this thing. I've died a thousand deaths <laughs> to leaving you have got to speak to David. And the day came that David, after a uh, staff meeting, he said, Wesley, will you stay? And I said, okay. And I knew it was coming. I sat down, and 
he said, so how are things going? And I said, well, they're going all right. You know, it's good, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, well, what's God speaking to you? And I'm like, well, you know, I, I'm thinking in my mind, do I say anything? I don't know what to say. And he said to me, well, the Lord's been telling me for a year that it's time to let you go, that it's time for you to go. And my mouth just dropped open. God did it. Oh, my gosh. I never thought possible that God could convince David to let me leave. Like, I didn't think that was possible. But again, it showed my perception of God, that God wasn't big enough to speak to my leader. I made God really small. And I thought, if I don't speak to my leader, God never will. But God did it. He came through. And David said, let's pray about it. Let's figure out how to transition you out well. And he said, because I said, yeah, I've been feeling that for the past several weeks. I think I'm supposed to go to Brazil. So he said, okay, let's pray through it as a team. See how that's going to look, how you're going to pass your responsibilities on. At that point, I was one of the top leaders of the ministry, meaning that I had a lot of responsibility. So I'd have to train people up to do the jobs that I was doing, and they didn't have a big staff, so we had to pray through that. But that's, that's the thing. I had a terrifying fear of being committed because it meant I was out of control, and I had to trust a, a faulty human being. Really, I had to trust God was above that faulty human being. I had to trust that God was more a higher authority than here and that God heard my prayers and God knew the right timing and that God was in control and that he could handle me. And I didn't have to make things happen myself because of fear. I didn't have to push. Um, during that six years, six and a half years that I was there, um, so many people came to the ministry, committed, and left before their commitment was done. The reasoning being, there were, you know, lots of reasons. We can come up with tons of reasons. God told me to come. Six months later, he's telling me to leave. Well, I'm sorry. You committed for a year. God didn't change his mind halfway through. He told you to commit for a year, and all of a sudden, six months later, where things are getting really tough, he's all of a sudden telling you to leave. I don't think so. That's not how he works. That's not how he looks. And we're going to look at a lot of scripture to show that that's not God's character. That's not how he is. We are so moved and motivated by fear because of our orphan mentality. It's scary to not be in control. It's scary to have someone else making decisions and having to submit to them. It's scary to be vulnerable. It's scary to open ourselves up for others to see what's really on the inside. That's not an easy thing. But it's where he's calling us to, because if we're secure in his love, like we talked about the first week, if we're secure in what he thinks about us, then we can be secure no matter where we are, no matter what's going on. There was this quote that came to my mind as I was writing this out years ago, and it says, when we have, why did I not write it down? Remind me how it starts, because I remember. What? Thank you. When we have revelation of the Father and who we are as sons, we can submit ourselves to any earthly leadership and commit without fear. I'm going to say it again. When we have revelation of the Father, who he is, and who we are as sons, as his children, we can submit ourselves 
to any earthly leadership and commit without fear. I'm going to break it down. When we know God as our father, he is the highest authority. He is ruler over all things, and he can do whatever he wants to do. When I have revelation of that, real revelation that it infuses in who I am, and then I have revelation of who I am as his child, how much he loves me, how much he cares about me, a revelation of those two things, my world changes. I can submit myself anywhere and commit without fear because I trust him. I'm not trusting myself. I'm not trusting people. I'm trusting him, who he is, how great he is. Now, there's an exception here, obviously. If they tell you to sin, you have no no um, obligation to submit to anyone telling you to sin. And unfortunately, that happens in the church, too. And sadly, I have to add that part in because there's been sexual abuse in the church. There has been abuse in the church, sadly. But outside of sin, we can submit ourselves to anyone and commit without fear because we trust who God is. We trust his ability to come through. I think of Sean Foster. Many of you met him and his wife. They are the founders of the church in New Hampshire who also sent leaders to plant this church. So Sean and his wife were part of a church that was very unhealthy. The leadership of the church was definitely abusive and and maybe abusive in the sense it was controlling. And controlling is not really awesome. That's not (laughs) God's design. Um, But hey, people are faulty and that happens. So he was in this church. He knew that God told him to be there. He and his wife, Stephanie, knew, had a word from the Lord to be there. And they were on the, they were the leaders of the youth group. So Sean, in his early 20s, he, he says he's praying. And the Lord tells him, go and start evangelizing on the streets. So Sean's excited. You see him at 40 excited. Imagine him at 20. Crazy. So he goes out to the streets, and people are getting saved and giving their lives to the Lord and coming to the church, and it's awesome. He's doing this for a couple weeks. And what happens? The leadership of the church approaches him, calls him into a meeting, and says, we want you to stop. We didn't authorize you to do this. Right? That's really controlling. We didn't authorize you. You didn't ask us if you could go preach the gospel. That's not a surprise. We didn't, we didn't, you didn't ask us. So No. Really, it was born out of jealousy. They were jealous because he was bringing in a lot of souls and the attention was on him. What did Sean do? He had two options. He could have said, these people are whack. I am out of here. I'm going to go someplace where I can do what God's called me to do with people who support me. He could have done that. What did he do? He went to prayer. He went into his closet and he wept and prayed and wept and prayed and said, God, God, you told me to do this. You told me to go out in the streets. If you want, if that's you, if you want me to do that, change their hearts. Change my leaders' hearts. Change, make them come back to me and tell me that it's okay to do this on Friday nights. He submitted himself to God. He didn't put take it into his own hands to say, which he could have rightfully been like, the Bible says. I can preach the gospel. He could have done that, but he chose not to. He chose to go to the highest authority. Now, this is, I love this story because it shows 
a huge part of who God is, too, and his love for us. Sean's leaders never changed their minds. So in my situation at Street Life, God spoke to David, and I was released. That's one side. That's, that does happen. God does speak to our leaders, and they change. In another side, Sean's leaders never changed, and he knew he was supposed to stay. He submitted himself, and he stopped going on the streets. So, this is crazy. God speaks something to Sean. Sean goes and does it. Sean's leaders tell him to stop. Sean prays, God, change them. God doesn't change them to teach Sean submission. Whoa. God did not change their hearts. Could he have? Of course he can. It's God. You know, we can't belittle God. He could have changed their hearts. He didn't change their hearts, and it taught Sean submission because there was something in Sean that God wanted to teach. The same was in me. You can't leave street, leaf, street life until David tells you to. He was getting at something in me. It wasn't about the other person. It was about me. He wanted me to learn commitment. He wanted me to learn what it looked like to trust him. He wanted me to learn what it looked like to let go of control. The scary place, the vulnerable place, the place that's like, I'm trembling, but I'm going to do it. Lord, help me. I need help every day to stick with this. It's incredible what God will do and allow in our lives to teach us to teach us what submission looks like. So many times we want the good parts of community and not the hard parts. <laughs> we join church and we want all the happy laughter, and I want that. I love to laugh. I love the joyful parts of community. But you notice an orphan mentality comes up when things start to get tough. When a little correction comes or discipline comes or vulnerability comes, people don't respond the way you want them to respond. The hard things, kind of what we were talking about earlier today, those things comes and you say, well, I'm done. See you later. This is too hard. This is too real. I'm going to a place that's not as real. I'm going to a place that's not as deep. I'm going to a place where I can stay surface because going deep and vulnerable is scary. And I'm all right with that. I want the good parts of community, just like the kids, right? They wanted the, the food and the shower and the bed without structure, without any correction, without any discipline. We are the same way. We want the good parts of community. We want the potlucks. <laughs> we want the, the times of fellowship together. We don't want any discipline. We don't want any correction. We don't want you seeing the real me. I don't want you to see who I am because I know who I am and it's ugly. So I'm going to show you the good part of who I am. And the minute you start to see the real me, I'm running to the next spot because I don't want to be seen for who I am. My identity is wrapped up in what I do. So if I keep moving from church to church, they're only going to see the good parts. They're only going to see the good, because you can only hide the real you for so long. It's going to come out. And that shouldn't be a scary thing for us as sons and daughters. If we know God's love, we can be secure. Hey, we're all a mess. That's what we were saying before. We're all a mess, and it's okay. 
God knows it already. He loves it about us, and he's walking us through a process together. And we can be okay with weakness. We can be okay with mess up. We can even be okay with sin in that we're helping someone walk out of bondage of sin. We won't shame someone for coming out in their sin. We'll say, wow, that's awesome. You were vulnerable enough to share what's going on inside. Now let's help you get out of it, right? That's what we're here for. That's what the church is for. That's mature sonship, mature family. We come in and embrace every part of the community, every part of it receiving, and we don't run. We make excuses like Sean could have done, I'm going to obey God rather than man. That's a scripture, right? That was a verse. Now, in people take that out of context a lot, like, when they want to disobey what's being said to them or they don't want to submit, they just say, well, I must obey God rather than man. <laughs> and it's really over-spiritualizing it and making an excuse. Because when, when, when they actually said that, that was in the book of Acts, and the disciples, apostles were preaching the gospel, and they were beaten tremendously by the government for preaching the gospel, and they got brought before the government, and they said, you can never speak of the name of Jesus again. And they said, we cannot do that. We must obey God rather than man. It was in the context of preaching the gospel, talking about Jesus, when your government was saying, you can't. And they respectfully declined. <laughs> and they said to them, we can't do that. They got beaten and they were released. The early church would have never thought of just jumping from church community to community. It didn't. That didn't even make sense. That wasn't even a thing back then because the church was the church. This community was as much a part of that community as much part of that community were just all different expressions of the big C church that is worldwide. It's not just one little community in a building meeting on Sundays. That's not the church. The church is a global family all over the world, meeting in tons of different places all the time, coming to know Jesus. He is our father. He is our king. And we're getting ready because he's coming back someday. That's the church. So jumping from one place to the other because you like one and you don't like the, the next doesn't even make sense. We're all one. We should be anyway. Dr. Brown, Dr. Michael Brown, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he wrote a book called Revolution in the Church. He's a great author, great uh, debater, teacher. But he, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, we have no right to say that I'm going to obey God rather than man if we don't already have a track record of submission to earthly authority. We have no right to say I'm obeying God rather than man if we don't have a track record of submission to authority, why does he say that? Because he's saying deep inside, we have a tendency for rebellion. We have a tendency to do what we want to do. So it's easy for me to use that excuse and say, oh, I'm obeying God. Where really, I might just be obeying what I want to do and saying it's God. Um, the challenge is to put that to death. It's a hard death. To say, I'm going, so what does submission even mean? It's saying, I'm going to uh, agree with your opinion or I'm going to submit myself to your opinion above my own. So I'm giving up my right to my opinion. That's hard. That is really hard. 
it might not be like a you're right, they're wrong type thing. It might just be an opinion thing. And you're saying I'm choosing to submit to your opinion to put to death something in me that fears being out of control, that fears being manipulated. And I'm choosing to trust the Lord. I'm going to pray until he changes something. That's a real child of God that can be at rest in that. There's freedom. There's freedom when we rest in God's ability to fight for us because then we're not striving to do something on our own. We're not striving to make something happen, and we don't have to worry about being out of timing. Like, I'm going to do this on my own because I want it. Kayla was saying this even earlier today. Our desires almost have a voice, and we can confuse the voice of our desires to be the voice of God. Sometimes he wants us to repeatedly put to death what we want to show that we're submitted to him and what he wants. Like I had this intense desire to go to the nations when I was 18 years old, but all the way from 10 years old to 18 years old, I knew it. God's calling me to go to the nations. God's calling me to work with street people, addicts, prostitutes. I know it. It's in me. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. So it came from him. It was a desire that came from him. And he's saying, put it to death until I want you to go because he's working at something in my heart. If he had sent me at 18, I oh, my gosh, I don't even know what would have happened. I would not have been ready for that. And he knew that. And because he's loving, he saw it and he said, submit to this process. I'm making you ready. I'm making you ready. <laughs> he loves me. He's able to change the situation, too. And we've got to learn to submit to his authority and realize the power in prayer, like Sean did with his leaders. He went to prayer, trusting that if God wanted him out on the streets, God would change the heart. When God didn't, he submitted himself, saying, God heard my prayers. He knows. And that man is going to be held to account before God for his decision. That's the terrifying part of being a leader. <laughs> Because we're held to account for the decisions that we make, for the things that, how we're leading. God will hold us to account for that. Pray for your leaders. So we're going to look in the Bible about some faithful men, and well, one in particular faithful man. As this picture falls out of my Bible, <laughs> he is a faithful man, Tommy. <laughs> um yeah, it's so funny. So when I think of a man who was not afraid of commitment in the Bible, I think of Moses. Why do I think of Moses? Well, we know the story, and you can read it in Exodus 32, and in Numbers also is part of the story. But in Exodus, we see the story of or Moses. Moses actually was an orphan, right? We know he got sent off. He was taken by Pharaoh's. Uh, daughter and taken into Pharaoh's home. So he was an orphan. He lived with a different family. He grew up in riches while the rest of his people, the Israelites, were being beaten and enslaved. So at one point when he's older, he kills an Egyptian for beating an Israelite. He comes out, kills him with a staff, and then he runs for his life. He runs into the wilderness. They say that that was about 40 years old when he did that. And then he was in the wilderness for 40 years, hidden, afraid. That's when the burning bush happened. So he's 80 years old. That's old. 
at 80 years old, the bush, God speaks to him through the burning bush and says, I want you to go. You're going to go and you're going to speak to Pharaoh. And Moses says, I can't do that. I do not know how to speak. And what does God say to him? He addresses the orphan mentality and says, it's not about who you are. It's about who I am. I don't care if you can't speak. I'll enable you to speak. Well, Moses was still, even though God was speaking to him directly, he was still terrified, and he's like, nope, I can't do it. So God, being gracious, sends him Aaron and says, Aaron can be your mouthpiece. I'll speak to you. You speak to Aaron. Aaron will speak to Pharaoh. Well, we know that then the whole story, I'm not going to go into the details, but they get out. The Israelites get out. God crushes the enemy in the water. And it's awesome. And whoa, okay, we're going into the promised land. Yes, we're going into the promised land. Well, what happens? The Israelites start to complain and make idols and complain and make idols. And God says, 40 years in the desert, 40 years that Moses was with them. But you do know that there was a time where Moses was on the mountaintop for 40 days, and as he's coming down, he hears a sound, and he finds out that the Israelites thought that he had died or that God had taken him away or something, and they ma made an idol, and they started to worship the idol. They made Aaron make him an idol, and they were dancing and having a, f a party around this idol, and God says, I am going to wipe them out. I can't take it anymore. They keep going side to side to side. And, what, and he says, Moses, I'm going to make a new nation with you. I'm going to just start over with you because you're a good guy. I like you. Those people, I'm wiping out. What does Moses do? He could have said, you know what? I'm so sick and tired of their complaining to Let, That sounds a good plan. Wipe them out. <laughs> like, I'm tired of that. And start again with me because you're right. I'm pretty awesome. He could have said that. Did he? No. Do you know what he said? He said, Lord, do not do that. Blot my name out of the book of life and save them. He was a prototype of Jesus. He was showing us the heart of Jesus. He said, take me out and save them. Why? Because what will the nations think that you brought your people out into the wilderness to kill them? Moses was more concerned about God's fame in the earth and what people would think about him. He was ultra committed. He didn't care. And then this is the, I'm going to end with these, this last story in three verses. Moses constantly left the judgment to God. He didn't call judgment on people. He didn't want to, he actually interceded for them. But what happens? Miriam, Moses' sister, and Aaron, his cousin, they start talking badly about Moses because they're jealous. They start talking badly about him and what does God do? Moses finds out about it, and he goes, let God judge us if what you say is true. Because they were attacking his leadership. They said, who made you leader? Who made you the boss? And he said, well, let, let, let's God decide. I'm not going to judge this. He let God judge. Miriam was struck with leprosy. They had to wait seven days. She's outside the camp. She wasn't healed until Moses interceded for her and prayed her back to health. Then, that's in Numbers chapter 12. In Numbers 16, four chapters later, I don't know how much time had passed, 
but four chapters later, 250 leaders come up against Moses. And they're saying the same thing that Miriam and Aaron had said. Talk about gossip, and it's spreading quickly. That's the power of our words. Two people were saying something four chapters later, however much time that was, 250 leaders are saying the same exact thing. Who are you, Moses? Who put you in charge? Why are we submitting to you? Blah, blah, blah. And what does Moses do? He does the same thing. Let God judge us. He's like, I'm tired of you people, but let God judge us. What happens? The ground opens up and swallows 250 people. God was defending Moses. He rested in the highest authority. He didn't go to defend himself. He didn't run away. He didn't try to protect himself. He was not afraid of being vulnerable. He entrusted himself to God, and God defended him. Now, God would not swallow people up in the ground today. We're under a new covenant. Thank you, God. But it shows, it's a principle to show, right? Moses was secure in who God was and who he was to God. Because of that, it didn't matter how bad anyone spoke about him, about his leadership, about how awful he was. He was secure, and he said, let God judge us. Let God be the judge. Let God do the judging. Let God divide. Let God, and God defended him every time. In Proverbs 20, verse 6. It says, many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? So all of us are like, yeah, I'm trustworthy. You can trust me. But who actually is trustworthy? It is a rare thing to find someone who's trustworthy, who's committed, who stays. Trustworthy is someone who's open and vulnerable and doesn't run, who doesn't hide, who says, I'm here. You can trust someone who's not hiding things, right? That's a trustworthy person. Proverbs 18, verses 1 and 2. He who separates himself, this is in the Amplifying, he who willfully separates himself from God and man seeks his own desire and pretext to break out against all wisdom and sound judgment. He who runs from community, basically, who, who goes off on his own and does his own thing, is separating himself from wisdom. He's seeking his own desire. That's the one who's afraid of commitment, the one who's running, running, running. But they're seeking their own desire, and they're running from wisdom. They're running from counsel. Steph Foster says this awesome thing. She says, you can be a blessing to many people, meaning you're gifting, your ability. You can be a blessing to many people and jump from one place to the next. Or you could stay someplace and gain authority in your gifting. Because authority comes with commitment, with training, with discipleship, with being open and honest. Lastly, to end, 1 John 4, 8. First John, oh, 4, 18, I'm sorry. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfect, perfected in love. 
wherever there's fear in our lives, we've not been perfected in love. We don't trust God. Wherever there's fear, we've chosen not to trust God. We can each examine any place of fear. If I'm fearful of being vulnerable with my past, it's because I haven't trusted God with my past. I don't know that he loves my past. I don't know that he loves me for who I am, so I'm fearful of it. If I'm fearful for finances, it's because I don't trust God with my finances. I don't trust that he's going to provide. Fear comes from that place. I have to make things happen. If uh, You can go at it wherever you want. If I'm fearful of staying committed to a place or submitted to someone, if I have fear of submission, it's because I don't trust that God's the highest authority, that he can change a situation. I'm trusting myself to make something happen, and that's scary because I know who I am. So really, this fear of commitment is directly connected to our trusting God. Moses constantly entrusted himself to God. When accusations came, when hardships came, he did not run. And will we be people who stay committed, who stay grounded, and don't run when the hard things come, don't run when we're at a place where we have an opportunity to be vulnerable, to be open? We don't run when correction comes. We don't run when discipline comes. We don't run when the hard times come. We stay because it does something in us. It develops perseverance, endurance, and real love and trust in God. And that's what we're after. We want to be real sons and daughters. Not real, mature, because we are sons and daughters. We want to be mature sons and daughters, no longer functioning in the orphan mentality that runs and hides and is scared and fearful and fighting for control. We want to rest in the fact that God is a good God. He's our Father, and he will take care of us, and we can trust that, and we can submit ourselves anywhere because we're submitted to him. Amen? So, Father, I pray that you would help us in this in our lives. God, I need so much help with this. I know we each do, God, to, to learn to submit, to be okay with submitting to another. Lord, I, we just we want to be open. We want to be vulnerable, not hiding, not scared, not running, Jesus. We want to be okay with the hard things that come. And so I just pray your grace over us as we learn to do that. We need your grace. We need your help. And we just thank you for that today, God, and, and teach us this week how to do that more in our lives. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>